The scriptures come today from Genesis 22, verses 1 through 14. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkeys while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here. Isaac said, But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out from him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son, Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, The Lord Will Provide. And to this day it is said, On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. For some weeks now, we've been following Abraham on his pilgrimage. Uh, pilgrimage is exactly the right word. Abraham described himself as an alien and a stranger. This uh, world was not his home. He was just passing through. It struck me this week while I was preparing this sermon that Abraham first described himself as a pilgrim when he was bartering with the Hittites for a burial site for Sarah, his beloved Sarah. And uh, it occurred to me that the loss of a loved one often makes us think about such things. We're just uh, passing through. I have to confess, uh, when I was a child, I confused in my mind Abraham with Mr. Dinsmore in his bathrobe. 
Mr. Dinsmore was my Sunday school superintendent, and uh, every year when we had the Sunday school pageant, he wore this ratty old bathrobe and portrayed Abraham, and my mind always went back to that scene. <laughs> A better analogy would be Sean Connery in that old 70s movie, The Wind and the Lion, if you saw it. Uh, he, Abraham was a great sheikh. He was a warlord. He was an extremely powerful uh, man, one of the most powerful men of his time. Very uh, wealthy. He had large uh, uh, herds, flocks, very large entourage. He had his own private army. On one occasion, he took on four of the greatest kings of the ancient Near East, one of whom could well have been Hammurabi, the great uh, Babylonian Lawgiver. He's called Amraphel in Genesis, which is the Hebrew equivalent of the Akkadian uh, word uh, Hammurabi. Dating is a little off, but he could could well have been that uh, that king. Gives us some idea of this man's uh, stature. He was a mighty, mighty man, great warlord. But his true greatness lies in his faith. He was a man of faith, and as such, is the father of all the faithful. When Abraham was about my age. God awakened him one night and led him out into the heavens and told him to look up at the stars and count them, if he could. And God said, so shall your descendants be. And how many descendants did Abraham have at this point in his life? Uh, zero. Zip. None. He was childless. He was elderly, and uh, Sarah was incapable of having children. Uh, she was barren. Nevertheless, we're told that Abraham believed God. He simply said, Amen, I believe. That was the measure of, uh, of the man. Twenty-five years later, three angels showed up in Abraham's camp. Abraham and Sarah were even older. Abraham was 100. Sarah was in her 90s. And as the King James puts it so quaintly, it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. It was simply incapable uh, not only improbable, impossible that uh, she could have children. And Sarah laughed. But uh, nevertheless, despite the sheer hopelessness of the thing, the, that very year, as the angel promised, a little boy was born, Isaac, the child of love and laughter. Now, you have to understand the significance of this little boy. This was more than a gift given to an elderly couple. This is the boy on which our salvation rests. God said to Abraham, In Isaac shall your seed be called. And as Jackson so well pointed out last week, Paul makes the point that when God made that promise, he did not say seeds, he said seed. Now, seed in, in the Hebrew language as it is in English is a collective noun and, and it's ambiguous. It can either mean seeds, that is numerous seeds, or it can be one seed. And I think God used, I know God used this uh, word advisedly because he wanted to convey that ambiguity, that, that this promise referred not just to Abraham's many descendants, and he did have millions of descendants. Every Jew on earth today is in some way descended from Abraham. But more importantly, he meant one seed, and Paul picks up on that idea when he says, in your seed shall the whole world be blessed, and that seed is Christ. Now, uh, 
Paul was thinking, he was going all the way back to the beginning, to Genesis 3 and the story of Adam and Eve and the fall that plunged the entire race into ruin. And he was thinking of the promise that was given after that fall. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, God moved into that situation in order to set things right. And he said to the serpent, because you have done this, the day is coming that the seed of the woman, that is a man, will someday crush your head, though he will bruise his heel. It's a picture of a man stamping on a servant's head and injuring his heel. It's a picture of the cross, but the result of which is a mortal wound that's inflicted on the servant. And this was the promise. The seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Now, uh, shortly afterward, uh, Eve had a child. His name was Cain. And she thought he was the promised seed, the one who would save them. She said, I've gotten a man, that is, the Lord. In other words, she thought that this boy was the God-man who was promised to bring salvation to the world. Turned out to be Cain, as you know, who killed his brother and simply became a part of the problem rather than the solution to it. She had another child, Eve, whom Cain killed. She had another child, Enoch, who actually was part of this line. And Enoch begat Erad, and Erad began Mahujel, and so forth. And you have the long list of genealogies in, genealogies in Genesis leading up to Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac. Isaac begat Jacob. Jacob begat Judah. And Judah uh, begat uh, David. And David begat Solomon and Abijah and Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, and so forth. A whole list of Judean kings Though they did not sit on the throne during the exile, the line continued all the way to Christ. That's why you have those genealogies, is to show that the promise given to Adam and Eve in the very beginning that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent is carried through the entire, entire Bible from one generation to the next until it consummates in Christ. That's why this son is so important. If, if Abraham and Sarah had remained childless, there would have been no Savior. That's the importance of this little boy. So that's more than the gift of a little child. It is the gift of salvation. So sure enough, nine months later, the child was born, this little miracle baby, to these uh, two elderly parents. Then after several decades of difficulty, Abraham at last uh, settled into southern Canaan around the springs of Beersheba. Ishmael, who had been such a troublesome child, had been sent off to start a new life. Abraham and Sarah were enjoying their golden years with Isaac. Now we come to our text in Genesis 22 in this dark road that Abraham is called to travel. One night again, Abraham was awakened by the voice of God. Abraham, here I am. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Now the text makes it very clear that this was the God that called Abraham, Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. The, uh, the word for God it rarely has an article. It doesn't need to have the article. But it's implanted in the text in order to underscore the idea that this was the very God who had called Abraham, the very God who promised that he would have a child, 
the very God who said that Abraham was his friend, who now says you're to take this child and you're to sacrifice him on a mountain that I will show you. Your son, your only son, Isaac, the son you love, and put him to death. It's almost as though he's rubbing it in. Now, Abraham was a child of his times, and he knew that the gods of all of the nations, the Chaldeans, the Canaanites, the Egyptians, all the nations of that particular time, demanded child sacrifice, and usually the sacrifice of the firstborn. Archaeologists digging in, in, in Israel often find under the foundations of, of buildings little jars, little clay jars that are full of tiny bones, infants' bones. Those children were sacrificed in what was called a foundation offering to the gods to assure the bless, his, their blessings upon that house. It was just an accepted norm. It was a cultural thing. Everyone did it. And Abraham must have thought, well, it's come to this. This is what my God has demanded. But characteristic of Abraham, though he must have been, his heart must have been broken when morning came. Despite his confusion, he got up and went out and found his wedge and, and maul and began to split the wood for the fire. Though every stroke must have driven that pain more deeply into his heart. Then he saddled his donkey for himself. He was elderly, probably couldn't walk well. Loaded the wood and the supplies, and off he went with Isaac and two of his servants to the place only God knew. Uh, question springs to mind. Did Abraham tell Sarah? I don't know. We're not, we're not told. Many of the ancient rabbis thought so, and this contributed to her death. She died shortly after this event. And they say that she died of a broken heart, a heart that was broken when she learned that her husband was going to sacrifice her own son and one that she did not survive. On the third day of his journey, Abraham saw the mountain. He said to his servants, you remain here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and we will come back to you. I hope you noted the pronouns when Joe read that, that passage. We will go off and worship and we will return. What, what monumental faith. The book of Hebrews says that Abraham considered that God was able to raise this child from the dead because he knew that his salvation was based upon this child as well as God's blessing upon the entire earth. So taking leave of his servants, the two, the father and his boy, trudge up the mountain. Mount Moriah rises out of two valleys that come together and it slopes up to a peak about 3,000 feet above sea level. It's a fair climb and Abraham was probably 125 by this time. He had old lungs and old legs and that was a difficult climb for him. And, and so he, puts, he loads the wood on Isaac and he takes the fire and the knife and they begin to trudge up the mountain. And as they begin to make their way to the summit, Isaac said to Abraham, Father, yes, my son, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb? And Abraham's answer is, God will provide. It's such a simple, but such a wonderful answer. Sometimes the simplest things are the, are the most profound things of all. It's the answer to every dilemma that you and I have to face. God will provide. 
I do not know how he will provide for you and for me. But that's a, that's a surety. That's a certainty. He will in some way provide. So the two of them finally reach the summit where Abraham gathers a few rocks and begins to build a, a crude altar. Piles some rocks together and builds the altar and lays the fire and binds his son. Uh, Isaac was um, probably in his early 20s. He was not a child. He could very well have fought his father off. Abraham was elderly. Isaac was in the prime of his strength and youth, and he, he could have resisted. He, it appears that he did not. He willingly submitted to this binding. If you look at a Hebrew Bible uh, that, that tells this story, it's entitled the Akedah. That title is taken from this word binding, and literally it means to hog tie, to tie the hind feet and the forelegs together. If you've seen calf ropers, you know how they do that. And that's the way sacrifices were traditionally bound. So Abraham took his boy and tied him together as you would bind a, a lamb, and he picked him up in his arms. Uh, this was bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. This was the son that he hugged and held on his arms in the day that he was born. This was the son that he held to rock and to feed and to bathe. This was the little boy whose tent he would often creep into and he would sit on his pallet and he would reach out and touch him and marvel at the fact that he was still alive and rejoice over God's goodness and the, and the, and the sheer craziness of this thing that God would give this little boy to Abraham. And now he places his son on the altar and reaches out with his knife to cut his throat and to destroy with a single act the life he and Sarah and God had created and with it his life, his hopes and his dreams and ours. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham and Ab Abraham. And Abraham said, as he characteristically did, here I am. And God said, do not lay your hand on the boy. There's a painting of this event, a picture that you, some of you I'm sure have seen. It's, it's by a 17th century medieval artist, Carvaggio, and it shows Abraham out with his knife getting ready to cut his boy's throat, and there's a hand reaching out of heaven, grasping his wrist, and the muscles and the tendons and the veins in Abraham's arms are extended. This was no charade. This was no sham. He was going to carry through with this act. This was the real deal. He was going to kill this, this boy no matter, no matter what. But God restrained him. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns in a bush. That's a male sheep, adult male sheep. And he offered it instead of Isaac. As far as I know, I, I, I haven't been able to run this down completely, but as far as I know, this is the first reference in the Bible to a substitutionary atonement. Here you have a lamb, a sheep, a life that's offered up for another life. In this case, Isaac. This was a substitute God provided. Remember, on the trail, up to the top, where's the lamb? God will provide. This was the lamb. 
And Abraham called the place Moriah. Wherever you see an M in front of a, a place name in Hebrew, that M indicates a place. The noun usually refers to the reason for which the, the reason for which the name is given to that place. The word means the place of provision. This is the location where God will provide. And uh, it became a memory in Abraham's mind that later became a motto, an aphorism, a saying. Whenever people walked by this mountain, they would point to the peak and they would say, on this mountain someday it will be provided. They were always a bit unsure what it was that would be, it would be provided, but they knew someday that salvation would be sent to earth on that place, that it would be provided. And God said to Abraham, because you've done this thing and have not spared your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now you and your seed will be a blessing. Now, this is the story. It happened uh, 4,000 years ago or more. What can we make of it? Uh, there's a lot to be gleaned from this text, many, many lessons, not the least of which is the fact that God does not want us to sacrifice our firstborn child. Micah the prophet later asked that question, with what shall we come to God? Does he require the death of our firstborn? And the answer, of course, is a resounding no. And later... Uh, that uh, prohibition was made absolute in the law that, that Moses was given. But there are other points to be made, and among all possible meanings, here's the question that the story asks. Can I endure the loss of all that I deem essential to life and believe that in this place of pain and grief, God can and will provide? That's the question. Now I'd like to make an observation here. Uh, life, I've discovered as I've grown older, is all about losing things. And I'm not talking about hats and sunglasses and keys and lunker trout. It's about losing the things that are absolutely essential to life. Uh, we spend our early years ramping up. Uh, we build up our bodies. We run, we lift, we try to eat right, we do the things that will, will make us healthy and Strong. We build up our minds through our education and schooling and reading. Um, we build up our families by falling in love and finding a spouse and getting married and growing children. And then we build up our financial resources, our reputations in the community, the assets that we will use for retirement. We put our money into homes. We build up, build up, build up. And at, certain, at a certain point in our life, these things are lost one after another. Uh, we lose whatever measure of good looks we have. Our attractiveness fades away. Uh, I have a friend who's a therapist, and I was talking to him one day, and he said just the week before he had a lovely young woman in his office, been talking about some issues she had. She was an absolutely beautiful young lady. And very poised. And he said to her, tell me, uh, what is the secret of your self-possession? You really seem to know who you are. And, and you're very poised. On what is that based? She said, I'm pretty. 
And he said, with what I think is a great deal of wisdom, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I said, what, what do you mean you're sorry? He said, because you won't always be pretty. And what will you do then? Uh, during the medieval time, there were many painters that painted pictures of beautiful women, beautifully coiffed and lovely dresses, looking into a mirror and looking back at them out of the mirror was a wizened old hag. Just a reminder that someday that's what they would be. So we lose some measure of, of our attractiveness and then we begin to lose some measure of, of strength and health. I have a friend who's dying of a brain tumor. Just suddenly struck down. He's in the prime of, of his life. He's going to lose his life. There's, he can't live many more months. I have friends who have lost children in infancy and adult children. Carolyn and I have uh, uh, some dear friends who just lost their daughter to cancer, an adult uh, daughter. We lose our jobs for which we've prepared for years, years of education. We've built up a position, a reputation in a company. We lose that job. We lose our homes that we spent years saving for and decorating and beautifying in various ways. And little by little, these losses accumulate and the pace accelerates as we age. Most of you are familiar with Shakespeare's uh, play as you like it, and there's this kind of morbid, uh, depressed character in it, Jacques, who does this, all the world's a stage soliloquy. I'll, I'll, I'm sure you're familiar with it. Uh, he portrays the seven stages of man, and the last stage of all, he says, that ends this strange, eventful history is second childishness and oblivion. Interesting word, oblivion. Sans teeth, that is without teeth, sans teeth, Sans eyes, sans taste, sans everything. That's a remarkable insight because that is what life does to us. Little by little, everything we have spent our life building gets lost little by little until there is nothing left. Robert Frost underscores that dilemma by asking the question, what can we make of a, of a diminishing thing? That's what we are. We're diminishing things. So what can we make of it? Well, let me make some suggestions. The first step is to willingly, ungrudgingly, give back to God the things that he has given. In acceptance lieth peace. Now, you see, that's the rub. Because it's not easy to give your health back. It's not easy to give your looks back. It's not easy to give your wealth back. It's not easy to give your children back. We all struggle. It's a process. It doesn't happen overnight. It's painful. It was painful for our Lord when he was in the garden. He struggled mightily and he prayed, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. See, that is the attitude that releases us. When we look at our losses, instead of getting bitter and angry and resentful, resentful and wanting to grasp them and hold them to our chest, we can let them go and put them in God's hands. He gave them to us in the first place and let him have them back. George MacDonald has a wonderful little line. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but the Lord will give back better 
than ever before. And that's simply something we have to believe him for. Remember what God said because, to Abraham. Because you did this, I will bless you. I will bless you. Now, the thing that's given back is not the thing itself. If you lose your eyesight, God may not give your eyesight back, but he gives you himself. And that's what we've been longing for all of our lives. The, the, the chief end of man, according to the Westminster Catechism, and scripture, I might add, is that we might know God and enjoy him forever. And that's what all these losses are about, that we might know God and enjoy him forever. That's the purpose. Whatever our, our losses, they dig in us a larger place for God to fill. Back in the 70s, uh, there, were, uh, there were some four missionaries, five missionaries that flew into a sandbar in, in Ecuador, one of whom was Jim Elliott, who was martyred that day. The uh, Harani uh, uh, Indians, the Aka, one of the tribes of Akas, martyred those uh, five young men. Jim Elliott was one of them. Uh, his wife, uh, Elizabeth Elliott, later wrote a book called Through Gates of Splendor. I read that book in the early 70s, and other than the Bible, that book had the greatest, greatest impact on me of, of any piece of literature. And in it, there's an excerpt from Jim Elliott's uh, diary, his journal. I've never forgotten it struck me like thunder that day and, and is still true today. He is no fool, Elliot said, who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You cannot keep your beauty. You cannot keep your children. You cannot keep your wealth. And so we're not fools to give them up that we may gain what we cannot lose, which is God himself. And the end of the process is to be immeasurably enriched, filled and flooded with the presence of God himself so that he and nothing else is our life. One of the psalmists, one of the sons of Asaph, wrote about this in Psalm 73, and he was just really angry that he didn't have the good life and he'd been deprived of so much. And uh, he was lashing out at the Lord in the early verses of that of that psalm and finally he comes to his senses at the end and he says whom have I in heaven but you and there is none upon the earth that I desire desire beside you my flesh and my heart may fail but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever the nearness of God is my good so he thought the good life was hanging on to all of these things that were slipping away and what he learned is that the good life is having God himself, having sweet communion and fellowship with him. Uh, Maxine Hancock is a Regent College professor. I've listened to a number of her lectures. And uh, she tells a story about her mother. Her mother was elderly. She was in her late 90s. She's kind of a little shrunken woman. Couldn't see well at all and couldn't hear. Didn't talk much except just social niceties. And she would sit for hours couldn't watch television, couldn't read. She'd just sit for hours and look out the window. And Maxine uh, saddled up to her one day and said, Mother, what do you think about when you sit there? And her mother got a twinkle in her eye and she smiled at her and she said, Dear, that's between Jesus and me. And I heard that and I thought, 
That's something you can't describe. That's something you have to experience. It's that wonderful intimacy that you have with God when you begin to give back to him the things that, after all, we cannot keep. And then thirdly, when our losses are given back to God, he will then begin to use us in a greater way to bring blessing and salvation to the world. Again, back to verses 16, back to verse 16. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. By the way, uh, Paul makes the point, Hebrews makes the point, that because God could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Because he said, blessing, I will bless you. Because you have done this, I will surely bless you, and I will make you a blessing. See, this is the story of all those whose lives have counted for God. When you and I come to the place of pain and loss and we're willing to give it up and back, then the fullness and the fruitfulness of our life becomes manifest. George MacDonald has a wonderful story called Curdie and the Princess. It's about an old hardened miner who had drifted far away from God. And the princess is, a, is the, the personification of wisdom in the story. And she encourages him to thrust his hands into a heap of flaming roses. And he does so, and the pain is horrible. He can hardly stand it. It burns and burns until finally it begins to diminish. And when he takes his hands out, he finds that an old, hardened, rough miner's hands have been turned into soft, compassionate hands. And everywhere he went and touched people's people, he blessed them. See, that is always the result of pain and suffering and adversity. When we take the things that we have lost and we yield them back to God, we give them up to him. And by a, a strange kind of alchemy, he changes the dross of our lives into something that's golden. Now, I'm not talking about activism here, rushing around doing stuff. That, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about being. Uh, Paul describes that quality of life as an aroma, an aura, a fragrance of Christ. It's this uncanny likeness to Christ that you, you, it's inexplicable, but you sense it when you're in that person's presence. They're like little Jesus wherever they go. And that's the process by which we are being conformed to his image. Uh, recently, a friend of Carolyn sent her a poem entitled A Portrait of a, of a Christian. And, and although it's hard to describe what, what this person looks like, this poem does an excellent, uh, it's an excellent effort. Not merely in the words you say, not only in the deeds confessed, but in the most unconscious ways Christ expressed. Is it a beatific smile, a holy light upon the brow? Oh no, I felt his presence when you laughed just now. For me, it was not the truth you taught to you so clear, to me so dim, but when you came to me, you brought a sense of him. And from your life he beckons me, and from your heart his love is shed, till I lose sight of you and see the Christ instead. You see what she's saying? It's that love and truth become manifest in us. And it's not doing a whole bunch of stuff. It's just being. Little Christ, wherever we go. And we touch people's lives profoundly. And almost always that comes out of suffering and pain and grief and loss.
Now, I want to leave you with an afterthought. The city of Jerusalem is built on and around Mount Moriah. Moriah rises up uh, out of the Kidron and Hinnom Valleys. Those of you that have been there, you know the, the, the topography of that area. There, there's a little rise and then a flat spot, and that's where the city of David was built. That's where the ancient citadel of the Canaanites that David conquered was found, and that's where he established his city. And a little higher up is the actual summit. And that originally was a, a winnowing floor that belonged to a Canaanite by the name of Rothman. David bought that from him, and that's where Solomon later built the temple. Now, uh, if you stand at the temple site and you look off to the west, there's a declivity there, and it, the, down underneath is a pave, pavement where the Jews often pray, where they, every day they pray. And you look across that pavement up the other side, there's out the Damascus Gate, and there's a, a bus station there and a sheer wall. Uh, that, that is recent. It's a cut that's been made recently because the Temple Mount used to extend all the way to the west, all the way to that point, which is now Calvary. If you stand at that bus station and look up, that's, that's the, the place where Calvary was, was located. Jesus was crucified there on the top of Mount Moriah. It gives a whole different meaning to Abraham's statement, or to God's statement to Abraham, on the mountain of the Lord, it will, be, it will be provided. That's where Jesus died. Now, I fail to see how anyone reading about old Abraham, leading his son up the flanks of Mount Moriah, can fail to miss the parallel with God himself leading his only son to that same mountain centuries later, to the place of the skull, where he made the provision upon which all provisions are based. When Jesus was placed on the cross, no voice cried out to stay his execution. When the blade pierced his body, no power held it back. This time, no other sacrifice was provided. This time, the son died. This time, the father grieved. This time, the father gave up his son, his only son. Jesus, whom he loved. You see, this is the reason we can give back everything, because he gave everything for us. Remember earlier I read this text, God said to Abraham, because you have done this thing and did not spare your son, your only son, I will bless you and you will be a blessing. That word spare is very important. You did not spare. As many of you know, 200 years before Christ, the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek because that was the common language of that day. That was the Bible of Jesus and the apostles and Paul, by and large. And they often quoted from those books. The Septuagint, in translating the passage in Genesis 22, uses the Greek word aphaso, that simply means to spare. That's the very word that Paul picks up, and I really believe he had this text in his mind when he wrote, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare, aphaso, same verb, his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? God spared Abram's son as he has spared us, but he did not spare his own son. 
the son he loved. He loved us more than he loved his own son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus, the son he loved. This is the reason we can give up anything, anything at all. Let's pray. We can only respond with all that you gave up your son for us, as worthless as we may be. And what cost to you, and yet you're, you were willing to do so. And this love frees us then to respond in love and obedience and submission to you. We thank you for these reminders, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.